Now we're looking at the second of the seven letters to the churches at Asia Minor, letter to the church at Smyrna. <clears throat> and if you'll follow, beginning in ch- chapter 2, verse 8, we'll read what the Lord Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if you'll take the map in your handout, we'll take a look at the geography of the seven churches, particularly the geography of Smyrna, which is north of Ephesus, you will notice, on the west coast of Asia Minor, province of Lydia, though it's not marked on the map. And as you observe, like Ephesus, it is another seaport city. It was not as large a seaport as Ephesus, but nonetheless, it was engaged in sea trade. Well, where does that uh, water that comes up to Smyrna and Ephesus, what, what's the name of that body of water? That's what I meant to say. Is that the Mediterranean Sea? It's the Aegean Sea, which flows into the Mediterranean. <clears throat> so it's on the Aegean coast. And there was a road from Smyrna over to Sardis, which then connected with the royal road we mentioned last time that comes down to Laodicea and Colossae and goes all the way out to ancient Persia or modern-day Iran. Now, Smyrna was a very lovely city. She was called the beauty of Asia by the Romans, Ephesus was a little jealous of that label, but nonetheless, Smyrna was quite quite lovely because her Acropolis and some of her shrines were built on a plateau on the south side of Mount Pegasus, P-A-G-U-S or P-A-G-O-S sometimes the spelling, which rises up from the coast and is the background to the city itself. Now, not only was it distinguished from this title, of being uh, the beauty of Asia, but it was distinguished from as, as a result of being the, the home of many famous Greeks, and the most famous of them is <clears throat> allegedly the poet Homer was born in Smyrna, and <clears throat> he, of course, the author of the great Iliad and Odyssey. Now, Smyrna is a uh, <clears throat> is 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 a modern city as well, only the modern name, the Arabic name is Izmir, modern-day Turkey. And Izmir is a quite prosperous city, 
uh, quite significantly large, as a matter of fact. In fact, I think it's regarded as one of the two or three largest cities in all of Turkey. But <clears throat> unfortunately for our purposes, in terms of the archaeological record, a good bit of Izmir has been built over the site of Smyrna. So there are not a whole lot of remains of ancient Smyrna because they have been covered over <clears throat> Uh, by the by, the uh, modern city, and of course in its development since the uh, first century. All right, that gives you a general idea of the location and some of its distinctive character. Now let's ask the question about the imperative which was demanded of the Church of Ephesus last week. Any of you remember that imperative which was demanded of the church at Ephesus? That's not the imperative. Because they had left their first love, repent. That's in verse 5. Now, as you notice or survey verses which reflect on the church at Smyrna, do you find that imperative in the verses 8 through 11? Did you hear me read that word when I read it? It is not there, is it? Interesting. All right, now we go down to survey the other seven churches briefly. What about, what about the church at Pergamon, which is the next in the list? Yes, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16 carries this very same word that was used in verse 5. The charge to Ephesus is repeated as a charge to Pergamon, although you will notice that in verse 5, repent occurs twice. With respect to Pergamon, it is only used once. Then the next is Thyatira. Why don't you survey, scan that quickly and see if you find that word there. Where? Okay, very good. Verse 21, any place else? Actually, it's in, it's two times in verse 21. I'm sorry, I, mis, I misled you with the way I stated that question. <clears throat> so the word repent is twice repeated to Thyatira in verse uh, 21. It further, it, it also occurs one more time in verse 22. So there are three repents in the, in, in the address to Thyatira. We move on to chapter 3 in the church at Sardis. Do you find the word repent in that letter? Verse 3. Anywhere else in that uh, address to that church, or is it just that one occurrence? No, that seems to be the only occurrence, doesn't it? All right, now we come to Philadelphia. Scanning Philadelphia, verses 7 to 13 in chapter 3. 
do you find the word repent? No, it does not occur in the address to the church in Philadelphia. And what about Laodicea, the last of the seven? Verse 19. All right, now notice the pattern that we've observed. <clears throat> the charge to repent is addressed to the first church, Ephesus, to the third, fourth, and fifth churches, Pergamon, Thyatira, and Sardis, and to the last church, Laodicea. It is not addressed to the second church, nor is it addressed to the sixth church in the list. In other words, the second from the first is exempt from the imperative, and the second from the last is exempt from the imperative. It is an interesting parallel that neither Smyrna nor Philadelphia are rebuked by Christ or urged to repent. Now, if you place the seven churches in an arch style, Thyatira would be the keystone to the arch, and Thyatira has the most frequent occurrence of that rebuke to repent three times. I don't know what to make of that, except that it's an interesting parallelism, that namely there is a symmetry between church number two and church number six, but the other churches also have a symmetry. They are required to repent at the command of the Lord, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason I put a question mark on your outline beside the pattern of, of the second and sixth churches. The second from the beginning and the second from the end are free of any rebuke or any chastisement from the Lord Jesus. And we'll take a look at the reason for that as we treat Smyrna in detail this afternoon. All right, an interesting pattern, though I'm not sure there is anything more than just the peculiarity or the coincidence of the pattern. I don't want to make too much of it, but it is of interest to me to observe the, the parallel or, or synonymous sequence. Now, inside the letter to the Church of Smyrna, looking now again at verses 8 to 11 in more detail, I am suggesting that there is an inclusio here. So if you scan the verse, verses 8 to 11 again, let's see if you can pick up the inclusio. Yes, let's begin with life in verse 8, and you'll notice life also in verse 10. This 
is an inclusio of reciprocity. That is, the one who has it, the one who possesses it, is the one who bestows it, is the one who gives it. So he includes them in that which belongs to him. He who has come to life, who has life after death, he who comes has come to life will give them life as a crown. So the bestower, the possessor, is the bestower. He folds them into the life that he has. Here is this reciprocal or mirror or reflex relationship between Christ and his beloved sons and daughters. What he possesses in terms of life, he grants to them as a gift. And they reciprocally reflect that life that he grants to them as they live out that life given from above before the face of the watching world. Their life is included. Here's the inclusio. Their life is included in his life. Now, Marge mentioned that there is another inclusio word here, namely death, dead or death, and that is an antithesis of the reflex of life. The antithesis of life, of course, is death, and he who is dead, he who actually became dead, as the Greek reads literally, he who became dead has now come to life. He is alive from the, from the dead, and as the inclusio of life involves them in his own life, so the inclusio from death also involves them in their involvement or being folded down into his death. The antithesis belongs to him. He is alive from the dead. And the antithesis belongs to them in him. Their death will be reversed with life as his was. Notice verse 10. But it already is. So it is a now not yet reverse inclusio. Namely, what Christ has being alive from the dead is what we have in being alive from our spiritual deadness and trespasses and sin and eventually our own physical deadness in the grave or in the tomb. As it was with him, so it is with those whom he has brought into union with himself. So here in this uh, uh, promise of life or reality of life or vitality of life, and in the antithesis of that life, namely death itself, there is the centrality of the work of Christ on behalf of his people. He who has life grants it. He who is alive from the dead grants life from the dead to those whom he joins to himself. All right, so we are once again reminded of this New Testament profound and wonderful mirror relationship. 
It's no different from John than it is in Paul, than it is in the writer of the Hebrews, than it is in in the Gospels, in part in the book of Acts, in the preaching of the early disciples. It is this pattern of relationship between Christ and his children, his redeemed children. What he has achieved and what he has received, he mirrors or reflects to them by uniting them to that very reality that is his to give. And what they receive from his achievement is the very mirror reality of his work as their savior. Now, how crucial then is it for him to have been truly raised from the dead in the flesh, in the body? How centrally important is that historical fact? You see, without it, then there is no life out of death. Without it, death triumphs. Without it, life is only for this world, only even for this age. Life is not heavenly. It is not eternal. It does not have the quality of life that God himself has. For here is what Jesus demonstrates. He demonstrates in that resurrection that the life of eternity, the life that God himself has, that that life is found in him, and he demonstrates it being by being alive in the body from the tomb of death in which he was laid three days before. Now, I don't want to stop at the centrality of the resurrection, though I want to underscore its historic facticity and the fact that if it's not a fact, if the bones of Jesus are still somewhere in Palestine or have been carried somewhere else all over the world, as relics, if the bones of Jesus are not there, then there is no life. There is only death. But if he rose in history, in the flesh, and is alive from the tomb, alive from the dead, he is declared to be the Son of God with power, as Paul puts it in Romans. Not only the Son of God with power, but the Son of God indeed. There is the confirmation that he is whom he claimed to be. But the benefit to us is personal and practical and real because the vitality of our life is in his life. And the reality of our life out of death is in the reality of his life out of death. Everything hangs upon it. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is a myth. Without the empty tomb on that first Easter morning, Christianity is a fable. It is like a fairy tale. It has no credibility. What John is doing here, or what Christ himself is doing in his revelation to John, is once again underscoring the, the historicity or facticity of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from that tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. 
All right, now one more thing to note here. When we talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and historic facticity, we can't forget that that resurrection body isn't around on the face of the earth. That resurrection body was, in a real sense, raptured into heaven. It was taken up into glory. And in that being taken up into glory, it was glorified. The body of Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, is glorified at the right hand of God his Father. Now that is possibly what is behind that phrase first and last in verse 8. We usually think of that, well, how do we usually think of that? How do we, how do we think of the meaning of Jesus' comment there when he says he is the first and the last? How do you interpret that when you read it? Or, or do you just, or do you just go over it, Bob? Beginning and end. What does that mean? Well, he's here from the beginning and he'll be here till the end. <laughs> Are you thinking of his presence then? Well, I'm thinking of eternity. Okay. So you're thinking of first meaning eternal and last meaning eternal. So it bridges eternity. Yes, that's a common way for us to think of first and last. That namely he is eternally from the beginning, though he is first in eternity and he is last in eternity, or he's eternally first and eternally last. He spans the whole realm or the whole range of eternity. And that's certainly a way of thinking of it. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 17, it's possibly the way it's being referred to there. Yes, Reaver. It, that would be another way of saying he's eternal, yes, uh, though, he does, though he doesn't use it there, but it would be a derivative thought supporting the eternality of Christ. So, so let's take it a step further. If, if, if this is an, uh, an emphasis upon his eternality, then what is he claiming by using the terms in that way? True? He's claiming what? Reba? Well, I was thinking He's claiming what? He's making he's laying claim to what? Divinity. Divinity. Deity. Let's let's make it clear. Deity. Liberals say divinity, which means that he's like a divine sunset or he's like a divine personality. I know what you mean by it. <laughs> the liberals don't mean deity when they use the word divinity. So the deity of Christ, namely he is God. Divinity just makes him just kind of special. <clears throat> though, though historically divinity and deity have been used synonymously. <clears throat> anyway, he's claiming deity. <clears throat> he's claiming to be God himself. There is only one being who is eternal, and that is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So here in this passage, Jesus is laying claim to that attribute and to that personal identity. But what if he's referring to something more, something richer than simply being eternal God here? 
What if he's saying something about what happened in his history? Now, he certainly is saying that when he says he became dead, referring to his crucifixion and his burial. He is also saying something historical, <clears throat> something about redemptive history, when he says he, is, he has been made alive, he has been raised up from the dead. If we add to that resurrection what we were talking about just a little bit ago, namely his glorification to be now seated on the right hand of God the Father, the first and the last refers not to eternity per se, not to his claim to deity per se, although they're not unrelated. The first and the last now refers to what has happened in redemptive history. Namely, he is the first and the eschatologically last to be crucified or be buried in a tomb, to be put to death, to be raised from the dead, to be glorified, raptured into heaven and glorified. He is the first person to be so treated in the whole history of redemption. He is the first and the last. He's the first one to have it happen to him personally, and he is the last one in whom it happens to all those related to him. Now, I won't insist that that's the meaning of first and last here, but it does add to it something that that is identified with the history of his death and the history of his resurrection, being made alive from the dead. Whether it's what, whether it is what's behind first and last here, think of this. There is no other person in the history of mankind who has already gone through the first and last things. Nobody else, ever. Not Enoch, not Elijah, because they did not die. They were raptured right off of the earth. Not Lazarus, because he died and was raised and then died again. He was not raised or glorified into heaven in his flesh. So Jesus of Nazareth is the only person who has passed through all the elements of what we call the last things, the things that happen to a human soul at last. They have first happened to him, namely his soul was separated from his body, his body went into the grave, his soul and body were reunited on the third day. His soul and body were resurrected and re, uh, reanimated and resurrected. That body then went up into heaven and was glorified and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is not going to go through what you and I face going through. He's done with it. It's over for him. He's the first one to who it's happened to him, and he's the last and definitive one to whom it has happened to in the history of redemption. So what's your point, Denison? My point is, because it's over for him, it's over for you. He takes you along with him in this paradigm. He takes you along so that you have no fear in the face of death. You will be raised up. You have no fear in the face of the final judgment. He's already passed the final judgment himself. He's been declared right with God, and you in him are declared right with God already. So you too will be glorified as he is. Now there are some benefits to rejoice in. But notice how you're rejoicing. It's not you're rejoicing out of them as if it's some kind of devotional aspect of your Christian life. 
You're rejoicing in them because Christ obtained them for you. It's been obtained in history on your behalf. It's not just pie-in-the-sky doctrinal stuff. It's hardcore reality, historical facticity, because it happened to him already. It belongs to you. It is your arabone. It is your down payment. It is your legacy. It is your inheritance. Because it occurred in the history of mankind. Because in the history of mankind, it was all undone. So it must be reversed in the history of mankind. What was undone in Adam must be reversed in the second Adam. So we could think that first and last here could also mean first and second Adam. I don't think so really, but nonetheless, you can see the illusions. There's a richness here. The just saying, well, he's claiming to be eternally God. Praise God for that, yes. But there's something more here. At least... In my opinion, there is something more here. There are treasures and riches which belong to us as believers that are rich, which rich in abundance in the Smyrna letter. All right, now, there's another frame here. As you look at the text, there's another framework pattern, literary framework. We've seen the inclusio in verse 8 and 10, an inclusio of synthesis or an inclusio of, of union and communion, an inclusio of antithesis. There's another frame here, another bracket. Notice that word tribulation in verse 9. Where else do you find it? Verse 10. Now look at the inclusio and then look at the tribulation. Which frames which? Jesus frames the tribulation that they are about to undergo with the promise of life from the dead. The life that he has will stand them instead when the tribulation comes upon them, which he prophesies they will experience. So notice that in the face of the tribulation, they have all better been encouraged by his life and the crown of life that he will give. They have already been spiritually fortified, even physically fortified, by the fact that he has life out of death, life out of tribulation which leads to death, life out of persecution which is coming. He has it to bestow, and he wants them to know that they have it in union with him already. Even now, I have made you alive, and I will crown you with life eternal. Fear not this tribulation which is about to come upon you.
Now we move on in the outline to the interface with Christ and his history, his story, some of which we've already talked about. The interface is that the Smyrna, Smyrna Christians are being drawn into relation with Christ through his story, through his history. And that's the reason I've been underscoring the historical facticity of that history. His righteous life, his atoning death. But he adds to it several other phrases in verses 9 and 10. Their poverty. What is he talking about when he says, and your, I know your poverty? Is this economic poverty? Is this spiritual poverty? If it's spiritual poverty, why does he say, but you are rich? And if it's economic poverty, why is it there? Let's take the economic approach and ask the question, why would the Smyrnian Christians be poor? Because of the tribula- tribulation. Tribulation. Uh, enlarge, Ben. Say more. Well, it's unlikely that on this tribulation it should be very prosperous because you have to, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, tribulation is brought upon the Christians and that will affect them economically. Okay, the general principle is that under tribulation, they would be stripped of their wealth, perhaps, stripped of their property, perhaps. Is it possible that even apart from the tribulation, tribulation has not come on them yet, say, I know you're poverty, you're already poor. Okay, so if the tribulation has not come on them just yet, it is coming, then why would they be poor short of the tribulation? Yes, it is a prosperous area, as a matter of fact. It's quite wealthy. It's a beautiful city with lots of money. <laughs> because it's a seaport city and those trade routes that come from the Royal Road ultimately bring the over, over, <coughs> overland trade to them. Art, you were going to say something? Yeah, I appreciate your question. I don't think we've answered it yet. However, I do notice in the verse it says, I know your tribulation. So it sounds like that they are undergoing tribulation. That's a good point. That, that That's a good point. I, I won't... I won't press my uh, my uh, error there uh, or my uh, misinterpretation, which I admit. Uh, so, uh, if they're under tribulation, then Ben is is uh, vindicated, saying they're, they're being stripped of their wealth. But let's think about what, why they would have been put under this tribulation, and were they poor even in those circumstances before the tribulation began? And if so, why? That's generally thought of being as poor in spirit, but that's a good point. There was discrimination against Christians in the Roman Empire. Yeah, I was going to say, the Christians are outcasts because the Jewish... What were they labeled? 
Yes, the Jews are involved. What were they labeled? What did the Romans label Christians? Yes, Art? Idolaters? No, they were just the opposite. Yeah. Weren't they atheists? Yes, they were labeled atheists by the Romans. And in fact, <clears throat> they were labeled atheists in Smyrna later on, as we'll point out. So the fact that they were labeled atheists, and why were they called atheists? That seems ironic to us. Why were they called atheists? Anti-Caesar. Anti-Caesar, okay. Because they would not do what? Okay, so they would not bow before the gods of the Romans or the Greeks for that matter. And so that meant that they were atheists. They had no god. And of course, they didn't believe in a visible god or a god that could be made as an image with gold or silver or clay or whatever. <clears throat> and consequently, that reinforced the fact that they were atheists. Well, the Jews didn't worship a god that way either, did they? So how did the Jews get away with not being labeled atheists? Because they bowed with Caesar? Pardon? Because they played nice with Caesar. <laughs> they played nice with Caesar. <laughs> but they, they didn't resist Caesar. Christians weren't resisting Caesar either in particular. Uh, they, they were just simply not worshiping him as, as a god. The Jews wouldn't worship Caesar as a god, but they wouldn't stand in the way of others doing so, and they weren't, weren't evangelizing to the contrary. No, Judaism was recognized by Rome as a religio licita, that is, a legal religion. And they recognized it because of its historical antiquity, its, its uh, ancient tradition. And they also recognized it for political expediency. They didn't want the Jews rioting. That happened too many times. And eventually in 66 AD it happened for the last time and that brought down the end of the Jewish state or the Jewish, the Jewish kingdom. Okay, so this, this label of poverty is ambiguous and perhaps intentionally so. Though when you compare it with but you are rich, it tends to be emphasizing more the spiritual side of the equation. However, there may be an economic side that needs to be taken into consideration because if it features a factor of why they were in a state of economic hardship, economic poverty, because they refused work, they were ostracized from the marketplace, they were ostracized from the workplace, they were labeled as enemies of the kingdom, and enemies of the emperor and the imperial world. They were just simply enemies of mankind. All right, any other? Yes, Reba? Well, if they're spiritually in poverty, would that refer to they're sort of off on their own with very little teaching or they're just sort of hanging on? No, I think, I think this would be a positive sign of their, uh, their poverty. He says, I know your poverty. That is, I know your humility, your spiritual, your spiritual poverty, that you're not pride, you're humbling yourself in that sense, you're poor in spirit. So he'd be, he had been congratulating them for that. So why would he say that you're rich? Because in your poverty or in your humility? Same, same reason that Paul says, 
For our sake, he who was rich became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8. Any other questions? All right, well, let's take a little break, and we'll come back. All right, we want to return to the interface with Christ and his history. I had mentioned Paul's reciprocal or reverse relationship uh, with respect to poverty and riches, and that passage is in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. There's that reciprocal or reflexive or mirror-like pattern that the apostle lays down there, and it's conceivable that John is thinking here, or Christ is thinking of the same kind of reverse reciprocal paradigm, namely that the union with the poverty of Christ is riches indeed for the Christians in Smyrna. Though it's not unimportant to talk about these economic factors and the discrimination against the Christians and even in the first century AD uh, something that became uh, common later on in other centuries as well when worldwide or ecumenical persecutions of Christians were launched by the Roman Empire. Now we've commented on the tribulation or the suffering of the church briefly But this tribulation also reflects upon the tribulation that Christ himself endured. He was troubled in spirit. Yes, he was troubled in spirit, but he also underwent persecution and ostracism and the tribulation of being rejected even by his own hometown. So he understands the significance of rejection and trial, which is to come upon the Smyrnians because he's already undergone it himself. The blasphemy is another interesting word that he uses uh, to describe the accusations against them. And it's interesting that it comes from the Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic reference, it's just simply a fact that the Jews regarded Jesus of Nazareth as a blasphemer. And why did they regard him as a blasphemer? He claimed to be God. Yes, he claimed to be God. That's particularly emphatic in John chapter 5, where the Jews say it's not for what you are teaching that we, but because you being a man claim to be God. So that the, the charge of blasphemy against Christ for making the divine claim is repeated against the Christians at Smyrna who are undoubtedly uh, suffering for the same reason that they will not deny that Jesus is very God of very God, the Son of the everlasting Father, eternally begotten, and the second person of the Trinity. Now, we've already dealt with the first and last category there, so I won't say anything more about that at this point. Yes, go ahead, Reba. Are they calling, them, are they, are they calling Christians blas- blasphemous because they don't 
don't believe in the other gods, or is it the Jews that are calling him blasphemous? Yeah, the, the, the charge of blasphemy would probably come from the Jews, as he says here, <clears throat> the blasphemy by they, those who say they are Jews and are not. So this is com- coming from the ethnic Jewish community because they are claiming the same thing Jesus is claiming, particularly in the Gospel of John. Now, the interface with, with Christ and his story is also amplified by the interface of Smyrna with her story or her history. There's language here that recounts events in the past history of the Metropolitan Smyrna community and its history, historical story. And the first one we note is this uh, exchange from death to life that uh, Jesus refers to, a f- statement or an illusion which would be enriched by the fact that the Smyrnans, Smyrnians would remember that that happened to their city. Their city was destroyed, it became dead, and later on it was rebuilt, it came back to life. And that happened... <clears throat> In the 7th century B.C., 600 B.C., as a matter of fact, the city was destroyed by the Lydians, actually leveled by Aliates, is his name, King Aliates, who was the father of King Croesus, whom we mentioned last week as in our study on the Ephesians. So Croesus, his father, 40 years before Croesus himself, Croesus, his father, had destroyed the city of Smyrna, and it had lain in rubble until after Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, in surveying the rubble, hoped, expressed the wish that the city would be rebuilt, would rise somewhat like the phoenix out of the ashes. And in fact, it did uh, in the third uh, century BC after Alexander the Great was dead, the city of Smyrna was rebuilt. So it had gone through death and life as a Metropolis, and so this language is particularly suggestive of, of of what had happened to the city itself. Now happens to Christians themselves in Christ Jesus. The other word here is faithful, which appears in verse ten. Be faithful unto death. Smyrna was labeled by the Roman Imperium as the faithful city. Now, why would that label have been earned by the city of Smyrna? Smyrna was the first uh, Lydian or city in Asia Minor to adopt the cult of Rome. Now, after the turn of the uh, second century B.C., about 190 B.C., when Rome was obviously becoming the ascendant power in the Mediterranean basin, Greece had faded and Rome was on the rise, the Smyrnians adopted the Roman cult, meaning the gods of the Romans were respected in Smyrna and shrines were erected to them. When the emperor began to be worshipped, namely Tiberius Caesar, Augustus Caesar as well, 
from afar, but not in Rome. But when Tiberius Caesar began to <coughs> receive divine uh, accolades, Smyrna built a temple to him, and she became the what in the Greek neokoros, which is a word which means the the warden of the emperor's temple, the protector of his devotion and guardian of his divine name. She was the first one to do that in Asia Minor. She was not left behind. Uh, Others followed in her train, but she was distinguished as faithful to the Roman cult and the Roman imperium. Jesus is saying, I will make you faithful. I'd give you a crown of life even if you are dead. So he's playing on an element of the political uh, loyalty of the city and its label of devotion as a result of worshiping the emperor. And he's claiming, he's calling them to be faithful to a very different kingdom and to a very different Lord and God, namely himself. And they will receive a crown of everlasting life. Finally, the word crown in that sentence. I mentioned that Smyrna was regarded as the beauty of Asia because of this plateau upon which were arranged the Acropolis and many of its uh, beautifully lustrous buildings on the plateau on the side of the mountain, Mount Pegos. That uh, that picture or that vista, that vision, led to the assignment of the label, that's the crown of the city. The seaport was down at the bottom of that uh, hillside, that slope, that mountainside. So looking up, you would see these uh, lustrous buildings, particularly in the western setting sun, and it looked like the crown of a king on the side of the mountain. So that image is present in the in the language of the city's history, and Jesus is giving them the promise of a better crown, a crown of eternal life, as we mentioned under the term faithful as well. There are some who think that this word crown is also similar to the athletic victory wreath, the crown laureate of uh, putting on the head of the athletic victor a laurel crown or a laurel wreath, a wreath of, of leaves, uh, crowning them as the distinguished, distinguished performer in a particular athletic contest. Either way, that would have been common knowledge in Smyrna because the Greek games were also observed in the cities of the former Ionian League or the Greek League on the west coast of Asia Minor, and they carried on uh, under the Roman Imperium as well. So there are historical references here that would resonate with the uh, audience in Smyrna, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, <clears throat> that Jesus is promising something better than the socio-political history or the socio-political experience can provide. 
Now, I want to address this question that verse 9 raises, who are the true Israel of God? When Jesus says these Jews who are blaspheming are actually not Jews, but a synagogue of Satan. Now, this recalls Paul's language in Romans 2.28, and I'll turn back to that and read that for a moment. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now elsewhere in Romans, Romans 9, 6, Paul says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. This is the famous discussion of the parting of the ways. Parting of the ways referring to the separation between Christianity and Judaism eventually, certainly by the end of the first century A.D., possibly as early as 70 A.D. Parting of the ways led to this realization that as the apostles experienced in their evangelistic tours, their missionary journeys of Paul, etc., the Jews were not receptive to the message of Christ. They were not receptive to the gospel of a suffering Savior. They were not receptive to the evangel of God himself becoming incarnate in human flesh. That, that was an absurdity to them, and it was a blasphemy. God was invisible. God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. He's a God who cannot be seen. He cannot be represented. So how could he become enfleshed in human nature? No, that is, that is absurdity and a blasphemy in itself. And yet, that is precisely what is at stake with Jesus of Nazareth's claim, vindicated by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. That is precisely what is at stake when Paul talks about the fact that Judaism, had, by, Judaism according to the flesh, has come to an end. The Jewish nation as an entity has come to an end. That doesn't mean that the political state of modern-day Israel doesn't have a legitimate reason to exist. It does, but that is a political discussion. That is not a religious discussion. The New Testament is quite clear. The Israel of God, Galatians 6.16 is the people of God. The people of God are those that believe in Jesus Christ. Those who are children of Abraham are those who have faith in the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Galatians 3. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one innerly by the Spirit. We, as Christian believers, are the true Jews in that sense. We carry on the faith of Abraham, who is justified by faith, even as we are justified by faith as Galatians uh, spends great time describing. So this remark here, that they are a synagogue of Satan, is a reinforcement of that distinction and separation. The distinction between those who affirm that Jesus of Nazareth is the divine Son of God, he is the Savior of those 
who have joined themselves unto him by repentance and faith through the grace of the gospel. <clears throat> Those who refuse this are a synagogue of Satan. Those who refuse this belong to the kingdom of darkness. I am come that you might have life and light. I am not come that you may have darkness and death. The parting of the way, sad as it is, is a recognition of the distinction that the profession of Christ as Son of God and God of gods, very God of very gods, <clears throat> crucified, dead, and risen, that confession is essential to what it means to be a Christian, and no Jew will make that confession until he's converted, until he's regenerated. And praise God, there are Jews who are converted, many of them, <clears throat> particularly in the hippie years, the Jewish Jews for Jesus movement, which is still alive, though it has been changed and, uh, and, and transformed in many ways. But nonetheless, there was a great uh, <clears throat> harvest of, of people who had been raised Jews during that uh, Jews for Jesus time uh, in the 70s. And God, of course, will bring his elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue, even out of modern-day Israel, even out of modern-day Jewish communities. He will bring his elect in, so we're not denying that, but as an official religious movement. Judaism itself is opposed to the gospel of the Son of God, and that's the reason the strong label here is used by Jesus himself. He labels it a synagogue of Satan. It's not my word, it's the word of Christ speaking to the Christians at Smyrna. We who believe in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we who believe in his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his glorification at the right hand, his second coming in glory eventually. We who believe these things, we are the Israel of God. We are the people of God of the end of the age. We have the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the saints of the Old Testament era. It belongs to us and to anyone else who will join us, barbarian or free Jew or Gentile. The invitation is open to all. But the refusal on a part of Judaism as a religious institution is a refusal to acknowledge the truth of God. Now, one more point to be noted. He promises them tribulation. He knows that it's coming. He knows that they're going to be cast into prison. Some of them, the tribulation will last for 10 days, the text says. That means it'll be a short-term you know, tribulation is not literally 10 days. It just means it's a short period of time. The greatest example of this prophecy, the greatest example of this tribulation, is the martyrdom of Polycarp in about 155 A.D., a little more than 60 years after John received this revelation. Polycarp, it's called the Bishop of Smyrna at that time, or the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Polycarp was arrested and asked by the Roman proconsul in Smyrna, who ruled the city in the name of the emperor at, at that time, the, the Roman emperor at that time, to deny Christ. The Jews cooperated with that the demand. The uh, Jewish community in Smyrna also demanded that uh, Polycarp repudiate or deny Christ. 
The proconsul then brought Polycarp into an arena filled with a, a, a screaming mob who were asking for him to be executed by being burned alive at the stake. And the crowd was screaming, atheist, atheist, as Polycarp was brought into the arena. And the Jews, as the story goes, the Jews carried the, the uh, twigs or the branches to uh, <clears throat> build the pyre upon which Polycarp would be burned to death. So <clears throat> the cooperation of a number of these factors here brings this tribulation home in the middle of the second century A.D., particularly to Polycarp. And Polycarp's response to that proconsul is still echoing down through the history of the church. You can find it on the Internet by simply browsing martyrdom of Polycarp or Polycarp's death. But I'll read you what he said. When he was asked to deny Christ, and if he did, he would be set free, this is what Polycarp said. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Eighty-six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. Because of those eighty-six years, there are some who believe that Polycarp knew the Apostle John. That as a boy he had heard him preach. In fact, there is a claim to that in the records of the early church. So, Polycarp, standing in the light of this prophecy, this tribulation, this persecution is going to come, Upon the church at Smyrna, because it not only touched him, it touched others. There were others that were martyred on that occasion as well. Polycarp was threatened with the fire by the proconsul. I will set you on fire. And Polycarp disdained. You threaten me with this fire, and you are not aware of the fires of eternal hellfire? This fire is nothing in compared to that. And so that leaves us with that second death reference at the end of verse 11, because in chapter 20, verse 14, the second death is the hellfire of hell and destruction. Polycarp courageously defied the demand to repudiate his Savior. He stands as a sterling example of those who died for the sake of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Tertullian said, at the end of that second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church springs out of the blood of sincere and genuine Christian martyrs. We may be heading that direction in our own time. So think on what Jesus is saying here. He who is faithful, who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Polycarp defied the fire that burnt him alive because he embraced the kingdom of heaven which saved him from a far more terrible burning and torment. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the generous and rich grace of Christ who folds us in, includes us in his life as he includes us in his death. His death unto sin, his life unto righteousness, his life of eternity 
and turning us away from a death of eternity. And we bless you, O Lord, for this letter, this letter to this group of Christians who were rich in Christ, though they were poor in other other regards. And we ask you, Father, to encourage our own hearts and our faith, as well as our understanding of your word, even as we keep in mind those who have suffered for the sake of Christ, including Polycarp, so long ago. Bless us then, O Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and keep us in health and strength through his wonderful grace, life, death, and resurrection. Amen.